You're listening to In the Open, a Mental Health America podcast, a space where we explore mental health and navigate the challenges of life through honest and candid conversation. Hi guys, it's America. We're back for another session of In the Open. Teresa isn't here with me today, but I have a special guest who's new to MHA and new to our podcast. So say hi, David. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself, David. Uh, sure. So as America said, my name is David Riley. I'm new to MHA. I'm one of our research associates. I manage the data on our screening program. I am a therapist by training. So I do some clinical work on the side and then I do research during the day. Today, you're coming in, though, as a person with lived experience, given all your professional experience, we're still coming in as real people. Absolutely. So, you know, we're having these conversations around, because it's Mental Health Month, we're talking about a range of different things. And today, we're going to be thinking about how do we maintain our mental health, as well as kind of exploring what it is to feel fear that your mental illness will come back. And... I hear myself say that and it's like, dun, dun, dun. That's what I hear, man. <laughs> <laughs> so tell folks a little bit about your mental health experience and if that kind of framing resonates with you at all. Yeah, definitely it does. Ever since I kind of explored therapy for myself, once I kind of noticed changes and notice things improving, there was always this kind of voice, that dun-dun-dun voice, like you mentioned, in the back of my head that said, is it going to come back? You know, are you going to feel so depressed you can't get out of bed? And what is that going to look like? And if you do, how are you going to get through it again? So I definitely have had those thoughts. And I can't tell if I spend more energy trying to ward that away, or if I spend the energy trying to make sure it doesn't happen, you know, just trying to ward off the thoughts or ward off it actually happening. That so sits with me. Uh, I have never been uh, diagnosed with, with any specific mental illness. I've sought therapy and I think therapy is one of the most amazing things that anyone can do. But I think I probably have like undiagnosed depression, undiagnosed anxiety. And I think I do the same. I'm spending a lot of time making sure that things may not happen so that if folks have been listening for a while, they know that I have a a whole range of things tied to order. So any kind of disorder or lack of planning can feel very chaotic to me. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of feel like that's a little bit to what you're speaking to. But when you think about the energy that you put into maintaining everything as it is, what does that look like for you? That's such a good question. And I think that's the question everyone has to ask themselves as well. Like, what does it what does it look like to maintain my mental health? What does it look like to make sure that I don't fall back into this place where I, like I said, can't get out of bed in the morning? And if I do, do I have coping skills in place? Do I have supports in place? Can I reassure myself? That's where I focus my energy. Reframing that I've been through it before and I've gotten through it before and I can do it again. I wouldn't want to. I don't want to have to go through it again. But if I do, where can I put my energy in rather than thinking about how to keep it away? Where can I put the energy into maintaining where I'm at and just kind of staying on top of my mental health? And like you said, 
what does that even mean? What does that look like to stay on top of your mental health? Yeah, you mentioned sleeping and like maybe staying longer in bed. So that's definitely something that you're looking out for, like getting enough sleep. Absolutely. And this is, I think, an a problem when you have multiple diagnoses, such as myself. So I've been diagnosed with depression and ADHD. So it comes a question of, am I staying in bed and unmotivated because I'm feeling depressed? Or is my ADHD just really taking hold today? But yeah, that is definitely one of the signs I look out for. For me, that's probably the biggest sign because I typically stay on the go. I like to stay busy. I like to be creative and do things. And when I notice I have no interest in doing that, And I noticed that I'm having difficulty getting out of bed and just finding that oomph to get the day going. I, that's kind of like a red flag for me. On a typical night, like how many hours are you getting of sleep? I try to get between six and eight. If I have any less than five, I'm pretty much non-functional to the world the next day. But I, I do my best to try and keep a healthy, consistent sleep routine. I, I do too. Um, I've never been a morning person, so (laughs) I can stay up way later, but I also have the tendency that if I'm working or I'm reading, I did this the other night and I was like, I need to finish this book. And (laughs) I was like, go to sleep. You could easily go to sleep right now. But in my head, I was like, no, I need to finish this book because I'm not Mm going to be able to like sit down tomorrow and do it. And then my fiance got up and it was like one in the morning. He was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm finishing my book. (laughs) He was like, go to sleep. I was like, okay, yeah. But, you know, it's tied to so many other things for me. But I felt like that specific incident was done because I really wanted that for myself. I wanted to be able to finish this and feel good about it. But on a normal, I do try to get six to eight because five, oh, I'm pushing. I'm pushing to just function. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. like you said, being a morning person, I I already don't like mornings. And if I don't have the sleep, yeah, it's going to be even worse. Um, yeah. But that really resonated what you said about kind of staying up to finish doing something you enjoy. And it actually makes me think of something, a term I learned about this past year. Have you ever heard of revenge bedtime procrastination? No. What is that? So I hadn't either. And it as soon as I heard about it, I was like, oh my God, that's me. So revenge bedtime procrastination is something, I don't know who labeled it this, but it's when you stay up super late and you procrastinate on going to bed. And a lot of times it's because people don't have that free time to read a book or watch their favorite TV any other time. So as kind of like a stick it to the world, I'm going to stay up and I'm going to do what I actually want to do, even if it means I'm going to stay up till two in the morning, because this is the only time that I actually have where I'm not doing something, either because I don't have time to do it any other time, or I haven't consciously carved out time to do something that I enjoy. So I think about as soon as you said that, that's what I thought of is just that is, um, that's me. (laughs) That is (laughs) Man, you know, I I do that all the time because it is like the house is quiet. Nobody's pulling my attention in any other way. It's just what I want to do. And like you said, like it depends on what it's tied to. So I think this goes for sleep and just any other form of, you know, taking care of yourself. 
is it a matter of what I'm doing right now is super interesting and enjoyable and I never have time to do it otherwise, so I'm just going to keep doing it? Or is it like a self-worth thing? Like for me having ADHD, I get these moments of hyper-focus. So I'm like, I don't know when I'm going to have this again. So I need to take advantage of it while I have it. And I'm going to knock this thing out and I'm not going to focus on anything else all day. And then I associate that with my worth, right? Like, am I able to get this done? Can I use this hyper-focus to be more productive? You know, society's always telling us we have to do more, do more. Let me be as productive as possible. And like, I feel like it can be either or both of those things. Like, am I doing this because I want to and I'm enjoying it or because I put so much pressure on myself that I cannot allow myself to do anything else? I can connect with what you're saying, even though, you know, I I don't live with ADHD. This feeling of accomplishment when you are able to like hone in on a task or whatever. For me, it's like, yes, I've checked that box. Yeah. Right. I do question why do you have to get to that place to be able to feel good? Right. Which is a whole nother conversation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but that's very interesting. So in addition to sleep, right, that's one of the things that we're talking about. What else are you paying attention to? Like, do you think about the food that you're eating or anything like that? Absolutely. When I am quote unquote feeling mentally healthy, I notice I cook more often, I'm more likely to make healthier meals. Whereas, again, when I don't have that energy, when I'm feeling sluggish, counterintuitively, I order Popeyes and have garbage food that makes me feel even worse. And I complain about it the next day when my stomach's upset. But in the moment, it's like, I fed myself, I guess. Right. (laughs) Right. Part of that is when you're able to really think in in many ways for a lot of people for for you to be able to cook right you have to plan for it and be like oh i'm gonna make this x meal so you have to have the groceries to be able to do that so it does require for you to be in a better state of mind and an emotional well-being kind of way to also say okay well yeah i don't like always like salad or vegetables but this is a really good way for me to get nourishment right you also mentioned some of the coping skills So I think in everything that you're talking about, there are coping skills embedded in all of that because you're already paying attention to some things. But what other kind of coping skills are you applying to maintain your mental health? I think the biggest one for me has really been checking in with myself on what my expectations are and kind of reframing those. Am I expecting myself to cook every single night? No one's going to do that, at least not in today's society. Like, and, and the minute you get behind, you know, the next thing you know, the sink piles up with dishes. And now you're like, well, I can't cook because the dishes are dirty. So I'll just order out tonight. And then you feel bad about the fact that you didn't do the dishes and then you didn't cook. And now you feel bad because you ate crappy food. And <laughs> the next day you feel even worse. And so the cycle kind of continues. So for me, really kind of catching myself in those thoughts and like, checking in with myself, what are my expectations of myself? And can I give myself just a little slack? Do I have to be so rigid in my expectations of myself? And I think really challenging those unrealistic thoughts that I have, for me, is a way of coping. Because if you have such rigid expectations of yourself that there's no flexibility there, I heard 
once expectations are resentment waiting to happen. And that really resonated with me because when I expect myself to do something and then I don't, I resent the crap out of myself. And then that multiplies, right? Like in the relationships that you have. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a tough space, I think, to to navigate because uh, I, I am a person that has very high expectations for myself. And man, the expectations I have for others, I'm like, yo, you got to live up to this, man. I know you right. can do it. <laughs> Right. Which is not good at all because they are, they're tied to so many things that then we then see as, you know, quote unquote failures, like, yes. oh, you didn't do this. I didn't do this. You could have done X. And that type of thought ultimately is going to pull us down, which I think is the harshest thing because we do it to ourselves. All the time. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I wouldn't think of that as like your typical coping skill that you think of, but it is one maybe to kind of sum up the way that I do it is when I find myself falling into this, man, I should have done this. I should have done that. I should have cooked dinner. I should have done the dishes today. One thing that works for me is replacing that with, it would have been nice, which Mm. I find to be so much more gentle. You know, it would have been nice if I had done the dishes today, because what you're doing is you're not just kind of sugarcoating it. You're not pretending that it wouldn't have been this great thing had you been able to do it, but you're giving yourself some slack and you're saying it would have been nice if I could have done that. Maybe I can get to it tomorrow. X, Y, Z. So replacing that. It's so simple. Every time you catch yourself saying I should have done that, should have done that. Yeah. Just, it would have been nice. That's a good little nugget. It is, it is so much nicer and it gives you more compassion which I don't think we do that oh. enough for ourselves. No. You could do that for others, but when when you turn it around on yourself, you're just like, "No, you don't deserve any." And and Exactly. I think that that is the the sticky road that leads us down to then have these ideas that um it's kind of like measuring, right? Like if whatever I'm feeling right now is it tied to the a depressive episode that's coming? Is it tied to, you know, a manic episode that I may be experiencing? And that's such like a fine line that I I think people, one, they start to recognize over time. But when at the earlier kind of um, beginning phases of understanding what it is to live with a mental illness, it's much harder to be able to distinguish between the two. And so when you were saying that, you're not sure how, you know, how much of your time is spent really encapsulating yourself to make sure that you're doing well. And on the other side, like kind of protecting yourself to be like, no, no, I know what this is. How do you navigate that space to understand the difference and be able to distinguish it for yourself? I guess for me personally, it comes back to you know, I, I'm always trying, obviously, the work we do here at MHA is to destigmatize. And that work's always been important to me. So I think for me personally, it's trying to separate, like, why do I need to put a label to it? Why does what I'm going through right now have to be, quote unquote, depressive episode? Can I set that label aside and stop asking myself, oh, am I getting sick again? Or am I about to fall into this episode? Rather than focusing on that, can I turn the attention back to what I'm actually feeling? What am I going through? What am I struggling with right now and focus on that instead of worrying about what label to put on it. The question that comes up for me is 
what happens if I haven't gotten yet to a place where I even know that it should be labeled? Because I think oftentimes we we may function, uh, you know, in our day to day, we're just going about everything that we do. And it's like a, a slippery slope where you're you're wondering, oh, okay, if two years ago I was diagnosed with depression and I've been good, like, you know, whether I'm taking meds or whatever, I'm going to therapy, I've been good. And I have my, uh, my good days and, you know, my days that aren't that great. And then I start seeing small changes. I think the distinction between me, me being able to say, I'm feeling this way because of X thing that happened last week compared to the possibility that I could be going into another episode of some kind, even though I may not use those words, is the fear that I'm that I don't even know what it is that I may be experiencing. And the immediate thought that came up for me when thinking about my own mental health journey is this fear that comes with that of going backwards mm. and going back to and losing all progress that you've made along that journey. So whether or not you're in the beginning of that journey or you're on year three, you know, when you start having that thought of, is this coming back? For me, at least I go to crap. I'm going to lose all my progress. Mm. And because we, I think we see our mental health journey as this like, progressive upward thing and rather than I mean it's like a wave you know there's going to be good days there's going to be bad days and what I like to remind myself and try to think about is every single day I have something new from the day before to cope and manage my depression when it flares up when it acts up but it's still even as a therapist myself I still struggle with this idea that I'm going to go all the way back to you know, where I first was, that place, that beginning, the place that I so badly never want to see or visit again. And for me, that's the fear. That's the voice that comes up when I think about, is this another episode? Am I getting sick again? Because the question really is, is why are we so afraid of that? Mm -hmm. Is it because we just don't want to feel sad ever? Because I got to tell you, as a therapist, if that's the expectation, life's going to be rough. But if it's more about, am I going to go back to this place and lose progress? That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of fear. Yeah. I can hear Teresa in my head. But I know that in conversations that we've had, we've also talked about that journey, that progression that has happened from the first time she had, you know, the the first early episodes of depression for her and anxiety and panic attacks and things to where she is now that you are making progress. And it's so easy to forget that because we just, it's so easy to just be like, oh, look, this bad thing happened and you're feeling like this. And that voice, right? That right. that little voice in your head is just adamant at saying you suck. Yes. <laughs> you're like, no. Um, so it requires so much more power to be able to say, okay, I know that I'm not where I want to be today, but look at all of the things that I've done. Right. And that reframing, I think, is the most powerful thing that can happen for us as we normalize what these experiences are like. And to your point, right, like, is it necessary 
to label it. I don't know. Some people may like the label. Others, sure. you know, if they could be like, no, I don't need it. But at the end of the day, it is useful to be able to hear from others to know that whatever it is that you felt or are feeling is not completely your own feeling. Everybody else has very similar ones. Right. So when you think about all of the progress that you've made right, and the days that may ebb and flow mm -hmm. uh, between the good days and not so great days, what's the most powerful tool or skill that you lean on to help you move forward? So it's the most powerful, but also the one I struggle with the most, which is wrestling with the feeling of permanency. When I find myself feeling particularly beat up and down on myself, again, that voice comes in. It's like, oh, are we, where are we going? Are we heading back? It's like just ready, sitting in the driver's seat, waiting to take us there. And as soon as I find myself doing that, the biggest piece for me is to try and best I can. And it's so hard because in the moment, big feelings feel permanent. But to remind myself, at least, that I didn't feel this way last Thursday, so maybe I won't feel this way tomorrow. And if I do, that's okay, too, because it's not going to be permanent. It's going to come and go. It's going to be worse sometimes than others. And again, it's so hard for me to do. I have to rely on my supports to help me do that and remind myself of that because I'm a Gemini, so I tend to be a little overzealous and dramatic. And sometimes you just have to be so you can work through it. So I'll text up my best friend and be like, oh my gosh, I feel like crap. This is awful. Everything's awful and things are never going to get any better. And she's always, she's always good about responding. Like, do you need me to tell you how ridiculous you're being? Or do you just want to be dramatic? And it normally ends up being, let me be dramatic first. Let me get it out of my system. Yeah. And then... Okay, I guess now I'm ready to hear you tell me what I sort of know, but it's for some reason, it's so difficult to remind ourselves that it's not permanent and that we are capable of managing it and sitting with it. And as scary as these feelings are, I find that if you can sit in it, if you can find a way to make it tolerable, whether that's relying on someone you love and trust to be there for you while you talk about these things, sitting in that really crappy, ugly, nasty, dark emotion is how you learn to be okay with this feeling coming back. Because the more you kind of try and run away from it, at least for me, it's like a check engine light. It's going to keep coming back. I can put a piece of tape on it. I can hide it. I can <laughs> yeah. turn the radio up and I can ignore it. But eventually I'm not going to have a choice. I'm going to have to pay attention to it. And if I can learn to do that a little earlier and I can learn to just kind of weather the storm and be okay and build up my tolerance for that really icky emotion, for me, that's the most powerful piece. And I know for me, it's something I really, really, really cannot do alone. I don't like doing it alone because it's just too scary. Whether I'm with my dog or my best friend or my partner, I'm with somebody when I do that. And for me, it's just, that's so helpful. I got to say, all of that, it makes me, it brings me back to this conversation I was having 
last week, I said to my fiance, I just got to tell you these things that are going on in my head. And he's looking at me like, okay. And I was like, I don't need you to do anything with what I'm saying. I just need to yes. tell it to you so I can get it out and get it out of my head. And he was like, okay. I was like, okay. So then I just like went on this whole thing. And I was, and then he's like, do you feel better? And I was like, I'm not finished. <laughs> and, and I kept going. And then afterwards, I was like, okay, I'm good. We can move on now. I just needed to get all this junk out so that it doesn't live there and feel whatever I felt in that moment. One, it was a safe space, right, for me to be able to do that with him. But it helped so much so that I didn't have to carry that any further. And he didn't have to do yeah, anything. Your fiance didn't have to do anything. Right. And my so that that reminded me of another thing that I struggle with, which is asking for what I need. And sometimes mm. I don't know what that is, but I do know what I don't need. Yeah. And that's for someone to try and fix all my problems. For yeah. me at least, you know, my partner is a fixer. They they want to fix things. They, they, they don't they don't want to deal with the emotions. They're like that's too icky for me. You're the therapist. I don't want to touch that. How can I make this better? But sometimes we don't, like you said, sometimes we don't need someone to do it. it. And for me, at least when someone tries and fixes it, it's almost like they're telling me, oh, you shouldn't feel this way. Let me try and help you feel differently. And I'm like, no, but I just want to feel this way. Let me tell you how I feel. And so my partner and I have gotten really good about when we come to each other, we tell each other, this is what I need from you or asking each other, do you just need an ear or do you need a new perspective? Do you need, again, just like I did with my friend, do you need me to call you out on your ridiculousness? And yeah, just having someone sit there and listening to you while you talk about these things you've been keeping to yourself, undoing that aloneness, it seems so simple, but it really is that powerful. Yeah. I think we're both... I'm going to say lucky, but in my head, I hear uh, Michael King and he's like blessed (laughs) Um, (laughs) that we have people that we can definitely go to, right? Whether it's our friends or our partners. And I think for people who may feel like they don't have that person, there are also opportunities to connect with others, like through warm lines that really end up being a good resource just to talk to somebody so that you can get the stuff that's going on in your head out, whatever's happening emotionally in your heart and in your body, you got to get it out because then that lives with you. It's so much. I think we could have this conversation and continue forever. But given that we're going to do good for ourselves and we're going to do good for others, what I would like for for people to take away from the convo, and then if you want to add a final thought, David, please do. I think when we struggle the most in navigating a space where we say, is it this or is it that? And we lose the compassion that we can give to ourselves in that process. So try to focus again on being kind to yourself through all of this. So what would you like to add as your final thought? Yeah, I think that piece is so, so big. Like, it doesn't matter what you read online. It doesn't matter what someone tells you to do. It doesn't matter you could have every coping skill in the world, but if you don't feel that you deserve the benefit of that coping skill, you're either A, not going to do it, or B, not going to get as much out of it. And so being able to find 
a grain of sand of worth that, hey, I'm worth doing this thing. I'm worth the benefit that comes from me sitting outside, feeling the sun on my skin. Like that makes me feel good. I deserve that. I'm worthy of that. Because again, like if that's, if there's no amount of that there, it's going to be really hard for you to be receptive to not only the supports you may rely on, but this coping skills that you do have that, you know, work, if you got that roadblock there, it's going to be really hard for them to do their magic. Yeah. Thank you, David, for spending some time with me today. I hope that folks can continue to follow us and then listen to the rest of the episodes for Mental Health Month that we have coming up. David, do you want to close out our session? We normally tell people to keep fighting in the open. Yes, uh, absolutely. Keep fighting in the open, destigmatizing mental health. That's where we need to go. That's where we have come from. And I like to keep see it keep going. Thanks, David. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you all next week. Bye.